Podconduit Media. Content warning. This episode discusses the topic of self-harm and suicide. If you or someone you know is affected by suicide, struggling, or in crisis, help is available. Call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline on 988 or visit 988lifeline.org. 45645 in Canada and 0800-689-5652 in the UK are the numbers that you want to dial. Take action for yourself and be there for others. Enjoy the episode. The Sandman Unlocked. Hello, dreamers, and welcome to another episode of The Sandman Unlocked. I'm one of your co-hosts, Ben, and I'm thrilled you're joining us for our breakdown of The Sandman Episode 4, A Hope in Hell. I'm joined by my two angelic co-hosts, Ashley Mowers. Short greeting. (laughs) And Sean Dodson. We're getting real sandy here today, people. (laughs) On each TV deep dive, we'll be working our way through five sections. First, we will summarize that week's episode and provide our hot takes. Then we get into our scene-by-scene breakdown. We wrap up by connecting the TV show back to comics and then offer our final thoughts. Today, we are joined by two guests. This is our first guest episode, and we're so excited to have Alan Mowers and Kyle Stainbrook of the Min Max Podcast. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello. It is a pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Welcome. Alan has been a nerd for as long as he can remember, learning MS-DOS at age eight to play Oregon Trail, and where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? He has always been possessed by an obsession of video games, film, and Batman comics. He is co-host and producer of the MinMax Podcast, where he, Ashley, and Kyle explore the intersection of gaming, nerd culture, and theology. Professionally, he has spent the last 10 years in media production and marketing, currently serving as creative director for three companies in the internet marketing space. So, Alan, let us know, what is your history with The Sandman? So... I've only read a little bit of The Sandman, so as you guys are going through this and uh, my lovely wife has access to all of the issues, I'm also going through them as well to kind of uh, get my kind of first take on this. I was exposed in college, however, when I did a graphic novels course, and uh, I believe I've been, I actually had to go back through today, and I was going trying to go through each of the covers to figure out which issue I read. I'm fairly certain they just had me read the first one. And however, I was familiar with the art style already, though, because as my bio indicates, Batman fan, Series House and Series Earth is is done by uh, Dave McKean, and that was as soon as I saw it, I was like, ooh, ooh, this I like this, this this is nice. So that's I have a very small, uh, a very small kind of uh, familiarity with the comics, but have been watching the series uh, along with Ashley. Excellent, excellent. And I dig the uh, Arkham Asylum shout out there. It's a a great book. It's a fantastic book. And Kyle, you grew up in Rapid City, South Dakota, graduated from Black Hills State University with a bachelor's degree in human services, and then you attended the Northern Baptist Theological Seminary, where you got a Master of Arts in Christian Missionary Program. You're a co-host on the MinMax podcast and a deep lover of the social sciences. You're also an amateur folklorist, in his free time. So same question to you, Kyle. 
What's your background with the Sandman? Well, I have a really extensive and storied history with with the Sandman. It begins about three weeks ago when Ashley started talking about doing this podcast um, before we were recording ours. Um, And it culminates in today when I binged the first part of the season in preparation for this episode. So, you know, very, very lengthy uh, uh, history that I've had there. Do you do you have a favorite like bit of folklore? Um, as far as regions, right now, um, Shetland has been kind of my core region that I've, I've really dug into over the last several years. Um, for anyone that's not familiar, the Shetland Islands are uh, a chain of islands just to the north of Scotland. Um, so they have Shetland, um, Orkney, which is even further north, um, also a chain of islands. Um, and then the Faroe Islands all have very interesting uh, folklore because they are kind of a fusion of their own independent culture, but also you get a lot of pieces of, of Norse mythology and Norse folklore in there, um, in addition to the Scottish, um, in addition to the Celtic. And so it's just a very bizarre and unique blend of, of multiple uh, cultures from that region kind of all coming together and creating something totally new and, and different. So I, that is a particularly compelling region for me, especially recently. Oh, I love that. Glad I asked. You should really <laughs> ask him about werewolves, though. That's like when you really see Kyle light up. Oh. <laughs> Noted. Noted. We can do we can do cryptid talk sometime. It'd be great. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that that new uh, werewolf by night trailer that just dropped that yesterday so has cool. me pretty that excited. That looks so, so cool. Yeah, I, I love the camp. I'm I am here for the super cheesy black and white horror camp. Like, give it to me all day long. Amazing. Amazing. Well, Alan and Kyle, thank you so much for joining. And this is really, for me personally, a culmination of trying to get the MinMax podcast to know who I am and come to my podcast. And I finally did it. And I'm so excited. Yeah, we really were playing the lawn game, huh? <laughs> I think you're giving us far too much credit. All right, all right. Enough stalling. Let's hop into the summary. Ben. Thanks, Sean. Dream arrives in hell with the Raven Matthew. They make their way to the gates of hell and are met by the demon Squatterbloat. Squatterbloat then leads Dream to the city of Dis, where Lucifer holds their seat of power. Along the way, they pass through the woods of suicide, and then we see Dream interact with Nada, his lover from 10,000 years ago, that he banished to hell because she defied him. Back in New York, John, recently escaped from Arkham Asylum, is almost hit by multiple cars until Rosemary stops and gives him a ride to his storage locker in Mayhew. Along the way, they have an extended conversation about the true nature of people. Are they scared or selfish? Once John admits to having killed people, Rosemary stops at a gas station where she asks the attendant to call the police. Unfortunately, John overhears the call, and when the attendant attempts to shoot an encroaching John, the attendant is uncreated. Back in hell, Dream challenges the demon Karanzan as he has Dream's helmet of state. Karanzan lays out the rules and Morpheus accepts. Dream names himself as his champion and Karanzan then chooses Lucifer to be theirs. Dream and Lucifer then battle with words and wit in the oldest game in front of all of damnation. Dream defeats Lucifer and his helm is returned. Lucifer makes a last-ditch effort to keep him in hell, which Dream refutes and exits. Lastly, we see Dream in a storage facility where his ruby is. But John has manipulated the ruby, so it rejects Dream. 
We then see John walk in and reclaim the ruby. He then gives his amulet of protection to Rosemary and walks away, stating that he will now save the world. All right, so a jam-packed episode. Definitely took one of the fan favorite comics and distilled it down into 44 minutes or so of TV. So let's jump into hot takes. Guest first, Alan, what's your hot take from this episode? Well, first, I just want to call out the fact that I feel like in your description there, you sort of like grew, took the grown-up version of the Gen Z unaliving things on TikTok and just went to full, that person was uncreated. I feel like we've graduated there, so I, I applaud the use of good language there. That was I, Ashley, just so you know. Oh, it's yes. shocker. That's, Unsurprising. That's surprise, yeah, surprise, surprise. Uh so for me, one of the, I really enjoyed this episode. This is probably my favorite one by far as of yet. Uh, one of the things that I really liked is one, the exploration of going to hell and being able to walk through. And there's just a lot of imagery in there that I really found striking and stuff that might not necessarily jump out to other people, but I love that the the road to the city of Dis was covered and aligned between crosses all the way up and you just get all these different types of either orthodox crosses or uh, just, I loved the imagery that they're playing with going into the city of Dis. And I found the portrayal of, of Lucifer interesting. Uh, I love me some Gwendolyn Christie so that there's no shock there. She's fabulous. And owning this and being, it's her disconcerting stare that got me though. Like it's just the happiness with the hatred lurking underneath. Like that got me and I enjoyed that thoroughly. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Still guest honors. Kyle, over to you. What's your hot take? Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this episode as well. And I think the thing that I found most compelling about this one particularly, I, I, I do think the contrast between Dream's journey into hell with the conversation between John and Rosemary was very interesting because in a way they're both these really deep explorations of, of humanity, right? What does it mean to be humanity? What does it mean to be a, a morally aligned human, right? Like there's, there's explorations of both sides of that. And I found that really compelling. Um, but I think the thing that, that surprised me the most, the thing that interested me the most was the actual combat that occurred between dream and Lucifer, because, you know, it, it's setting it up in a very like, Oh yes, it's going to be like very gladiator arena style combat to the death. You know, they're going to grab big weapons and fight each other. And then when they just started talking, I was just kind of like, wait, <laughs> what? What's what's happening right now? This is like the coolest fight I've ever seen ever. And it's just like this intense and gorgeous imagery that's just being like traded back and forth. Um, and so I found that really compelling. I really, really enjoyed um, that piece of the episode, especially. Well, why don't we round out our holy triumvirate <laughs> by having Ashley... <laughs> Go next. This horrifying comparison, but I'll take it. <laughs> um, yeah, I would say that this is my favorite 
episode to date so far that we've covered. The Gate to Hell, the design was so much better than I could have imagined. I really loved that reveal. Uh, I did miss Dream just straight punching the gong. I was hoping for it. I even said, is he going to punch it? And then when he was handed very, very coolly, I will say, you know, the actual uh, beater for the gong, I was like, all right, that's fine. That'll do. Uh, I was also glad we finally got an explicit exchange between John D and another character regarding mm. what his motivations were. That was very helpful for me to have that kind of clarity. And I thought the scene with Nada was so incredibly tasteful and heartbreaking. I think Ernest Kingsley Jr. and Deborah Oyelade, excuse me, it's the first time I've said that out loud, brought some solid chemistry to such a short scene. And I really hope that if the show gets seasons to come that they at least get their own episode together because the chemistry between them was really, really beautiful. I did miss three specific things from hell, the chaos, uh, the pant suit specifically, mm. and then mm -hmm. also the CD jazz club. I wish we had those three things. Uh, but the favorite line from this episode was they make you bring your own fire to hell. That had me laughing audibly. Uh, so that makes up for those those three misses. Excellent. Uh, Sean, over to you. All right. Well, I'm going to kind of echo Kyle here, I think, and just say that I love that no one gets punched in this show. <laughs> like, just in general. Like, it's a violent show, sure. But no one is solving any of their problems with violence. In, like... Every fantasy or sci-fi show, I feel like they have these sort of long, interminable periods where people are just, like, flipping all around and then, like, striking and block-blocking and grappling and it's in this, like, really fluid way and it's just so boring. Um, I, like, I feel like a lot of these shows just have the same two or three choreographers for these fights and they're all doing the same moves and they're fighting in the same way and there's the same, like, beats, you know? Um, so, and I think you could you could easily imagine uh, a world where Sandman was made like 10, 15, 20 years ago where the studio is like, Neil, we love you, but Morpheus needs to punch a dude at some point. I mean, can you imagine John Woo directing Sandman? It'd be amazing. I, that, okay, that would be amazing, but John Woo's not what I'm talking about. Like, John Woo's on a different level. But yes, that would I, I, I would take that, actually. Um but so I'm very glad we're just in this like weird media landscape that you can have an adaptation of a comic book property where you don't need a bunch of fights and where really the use of physical violence is more likely to come back around to the aggressor than help accomplish that person's goals um, like we saw with. But what if that aggressor is a gong though? Mm. That's, that is, is, is totally appropriate, <laughs> I think. Yes. You got a gong out. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, so that it was just something that that was really nice to see, uh, and it seems to be you know a sort of general position of this show. Thanks, Sean. My have the tables have turned. This was my least favorite episode. Whoa, what? this is a hot take. Yeah, this is a tight take. I think the wow producer Pat just came back on video. He's <laughs> so shocked. The primary reason. And I have been the one that has been the entire time saying, don't do this, don't do this to both Sean and Ashley is having Lucifer be the champion. Someone needs to convince me 
why they had to do that for the TV show. That's obviously not what happens. And to have Dream beat Lucifer twice, you know, once in the game and then once in the refute, Mm -hmm. it just is a bit too much because as he stated, Lucifer is probably the second most powerful being in creation right now. And so it just seems a bit odd. I don't think, I think it was a fumble to have Lucifer and Dream battle it out. Because when he beats a demon, you're like, well, maybe he can't, but he probably can. And uh, yeah, so that's my hot take. Is that the only thing you didn't like about it, though? Yes. That that was enough to tank an entire episode for Ben. I'm terrified, Sean. <laughs> no, you know, I gotta say, I can I can see it though because um, it really does just double up on what we've already seen, which is Morpheus's victory over Lucifer. It doesn't really add that extra bit that it does in the original mm-hmm. comic book. I mean, it's it's clear why they did it. I think. Neil Gaiman even made it clear why why they did it. It's like, you know, we got Gwendolyn Christie here. Let's get her front and center. Um, So I can see why. But, yeah, you sacrifice some of the, uh, you know, some of the drama from the climax of the episode, really. Yeah. It really feels like Lucifer can't be an antagonist for Dream Mm -hmm. based on what they did in that episode moving forward. So, but we'll see. So that's my hot take. Wow, look at Ben getting spicy. Why don't we all uh, take a break and cool off real quick? Ben and Ava had the perfect life. Do you want me to drive? No, I'll be all right. I'm not due for another month. Until they had a tragic accident. Now they're on a road trip to reconnect. It's been five months. They stop at a bed and breakfast owned by Martha and Dennis Newman. Oh, well, hello there. Dennis, we've got guests. Martha, where's supper? Who have no intentions of letting them leave. Did you hear that? Yeah, sounds like someone fell. Gotcha! Why are you doing this? This is about something much bigger. It's about family. You have to run, they're catching up! Stay the night. 11 episodes that will keep you on the edge of your seat. In our first scene, we see Dream arrive in hell. He meets the demon Squatter Bloat. They walk to the city of Dis, and we see him go through a couple important areas the woods of suicide, and he meets up with an old lover, Nada. So taking a look at this first scene, Ashley, what did you pull like out? Like I had said with my hot take, I was so impressed with how they designed the gate of hell uh, that I immediately started to relax a little bit because I was like, okay, they might actually do this issue justice. I might actually come away without as many complaints as I had in past episodes. So I was really thrilled with just the level of detail with these bodies sort of comprising the entire gate and uh, or the the wall surrounding the city and the way that you know dream is handed the gong mallet as well as how he's greeted at the gate i mean i know we couldn't have etrigan greet him and guide him through so i thought it was a, a decent way to sort of allow for him to still have a guide that is familiar to comic book fans 
I really actually, I didn't think I would like this as much as I did, but I do like Matthew being there to sort of commentate and be a sort of uh, guide for the audience just as much as Squatter Bloat is a guide for Dream. So that was very, uh, not just helpful, but amusing, uh, especially when he says he's going to fly up and get out of there and then encounters bodies growing into the trees. I thought that was kind of amusing. So I was, I was happy with the balance of characters within this series of introductions to hell. Kyle, how about you? Uh, I will agree with that. It just in general, Patton Oswalt as Matthew is incredible. And just the, the pure, the pure, like humification, the, uh, humification is probably the wrong word uh, phrase to use with a uh, crow, but that's what I got, so I'm going with it. But he forgets where he is and thinks he's just going to take flight, and then nope, 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 just immediately coming back down to Earth. Like, that brought, brought delight <laughs> to me. I do have a question for the room, though. Is there a reason they're speaking in verse the entire introduction? Because the the whole sequence between Squatter Bloat and Dream, like, they're they're going back and forth in verse. And I was like, I don't have context on that but that is very, very interesting, and I find that very, I don't know if it's substantial or not, but it definitely stood out to me. Sean, do you want to give us a too long, didn't listen for last episode? Yeah, so in short, this is a trope of hell and demons in DC Comics. Um, it started with... Jack Kirby's Etrigan the Demon, who is in the issue that this that this adapted, and he started speaking fully in verse with uh, Alan Moore's run on Swamp Thing, and so different writers have sort of built and played off that, and so uh, now speaking in verse is a sign of rank for demons in hell, and so I thought that was so, I I really liked how I really liked Dream's showdown with Squatter Bloat because, you know, he doesn't do this in, in the comic, but that little, like, you know, volley he launches at him and doing it in rhyme mm-hmm. was just, it, it, was, it was a nice moment. It was a nice little, you know, because he's totally bluffing him, right? Like, yep. he doesn't really have the power to do much of anything right now. Uh, he's just sort of relying on his, you know, his, uh, his reputation, basically. I thought it was very nice. Yeah, so I thought that was really interesting. The other thing that caught out caught to me was in the sequence where we were introduced to Nada, the it was not necessarily the close-up shot, but it was the pullback. So as they were going to the wide shot and pulling back, revealing everything, all of the pillars that they're using to hold up the higher aspects of hell and how each one of those pillars is just lined with all of the different dungeons and all and the just the captives that are holding up hell it just that shot for me was just like it just hit heavy because it was like if this is just one of these cells and the hundreds of pillars that we saw it just helps put it in its scale but then also just hits home with the heaviness of the nada story so like if that's just one then how many more of these are just so tragic that are going in going on in hell yeah i feel like all of the like ev- all the close-ups in this episode of things in hell were so great like the 
bodies around the gate and the way they start writhing uh-huh. in pain when Dream hits the gong, um, you know, the, the, the cells. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit about the, the Lucifer's palace when we get there, but that was also very cool. I wasn't as crazy about the, uh, the wide shots, like the landscape shots of hell. Like I thought it looked a little bit more like, um, you know, like Utah or like Northern <laughs> Nevada, like in a drought. <laughs> well, you know, for some people that is hell. <laughs> they were also in Buffalo in this episode. So, so yeah, uh, we'll just kind of to, to, to keep rolling on that. <laughs> Sorry. I just caught what you said. Actually, That's good. That, that got me. That was a, that was a sneaker right there. Um, <laughs> I also really loved squatter bloats, like, his entrance, his approach, you know, like through the gate, through the mist, uh, you hear this sort of his like clomping steps and he like slowly emerges. Like that was very, it was very effective. And then I think the last thing I'd kind of like to call out here is, well, of course, you know, that, that dream and not a moment. Like I've, you know, read this in print. And so I'm familiar with it. I've read that scene many times but boy it hits harder yeah when you see that performed and it was performed so well mm-hmm. with such emotion and yet you know you it really conveys a sense of dreams like cruelty and coldness mm-hmm. which is a part of his character at this point uh and it and it felt like dream it yeah. felt like you know the it felt like the character it was the same character um, so I thought that was amazing. And this, of course, is the first this is the first moment we see dream appear in a different aspect. Mm-hmm. Right. And so we start to get the sense here that what we as viewers see and what the people on the screen see when they look at dream is you know, what they're expecting or what they may be familiar with. But it's only one aspect of this sort of multidimensional being. Right. Yeah, their their casting director should get some sort of award because that was so perfectly done. I was particularly nervous about how they were going to do that. And once they cut to that actor, I was like, oh, oh, this is wonderful. They did such a good job. Pat on the back. Uh, Kyle, anything that you wanted to pull out of this first scene? Uh, well, So I also have a question, actually, given that I... I I take it this is a a scene reflected directly from the comics. Do we get any information on what the difference is or why there is, why we have these bodies that are making up the gates and the trees and, and different things like that. And a character like Nada, who's very clearly still sort of maintained her individuality, her appearance, so on and so forth. Like, is there, is there a lore explanation behind that somewhere or is it just kind of a a thing that's floating out there at this point? You're just teeing it up. Why don't we do another too long, didn't listen. Ashley, what's going on with the wall in the woods? Kyle, I, I can't wait to introduce you to my friend, Dante Alighieri, from works such as The Divine Comedy. Uh, a lot of the way hell and the city of Dis is set up in the comic is very reflective to the inferno and the way the structure of hell gotcha. in in the inferno throughout so uh 
while you don't get every single layer, the woods are the, the woods of suicides. And that is in Canto 14, where you have people who have commit suicide, then planted in these woods ultimately and tortured by harpies. And they can only, they don't show this in the episode, uh, which I thought was like a permissible omission. Uh, but you have to break off a limb from the tree because they committed a violent act. They committed themselves to violence. So therefore they can only communicate and depend on violence to be able to express themselves. Uh, so it's a very tragic hmm. sort of inclusion, but it, also it's hell. Like there's no way to be PC about hell. Um, so right. th that's why that's included. As far as the, the gates of bodies, that's not something I believe that's referenced in the Inferno specifically. I think that's just a stylistic. But in the comic books, uh, the castle itself, you see all these bodies sort of piled up and configured in really horrific ways. Um, so I think they just translated sure. that to the wall around. Gotcha. Okay. And as a reminder... If you or anyone you know is affected by suicide, struggling, or in crisis, help is available. Call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988 or visit 988lifeline.org. All right. Anybody else want to talk about something in this first scene before we move on to our next one? So just like I generally thought Matthew's inclusion here was pretty good too, but at the point when he says... I forgot the devil used to be an angel. It's a little bit like, I mean, come on, Matthew, try to keep up. It's like, yeah. I get you're standing in for the viewer here, but uh, we get it. Yeah, that, that felt a little on the nose, um, and especially as well when he came in later and Dream says, the morning star, and Matthew's confused, and he's like, what? The morning star? <laughs> I'm just like, dude, where have you been? Um I do have a very brief comment, though, because it's when when Dream is talking about hell and talking about Lucifer, he also mentions a name, uh, Samael, which I didn't reference last episode because that's a name that is created in the Talmud, which is a series of contemplative writings from rabbinic Judaism, which I haven't studied at length and just totally um, – removed from my my own research when i was preparing for last episode so forgive me for that omission uh but that's where that's coming from it's still roughly from all of those texts together it's just being a christian theologian i don't often study the the talmud all right well thanks for that great first scene breakdown so next we're going to pivot over to john so he has recently escaped arkham asylum if you remember he just got a coat from the corinthian and we seem to see him in that next very moment and he is almost hit by a few cars as he crosses the street against the light. Never cross the street against the light. You will probably get hit by a car. That's just, that's advice from Ben. Fortunately, Rosemary shows up, gets out of her car, and offers to drive him to Mayhew, which is where his storage locker, storage container is. So we are going to see them travel, have an extended conversation, uh, and then eventually he is going to let her know that he has murdered people and has been in a psychiatric hospital for the last few decades. So we really get to dive in here and talk about this. I was really excited about the conversation that they were having and really felt like that was a, 
a thing to highlight here. So maybe we can start, Sean, with you this time. And what do you want to pull out of this scene? Well, first of all, it's very lucky for Rosemary that she is the best person who has ever lived <laughs> in the history of the world. I feel like if she hadn't been so completely immaculate, she would have been in big trouble. But I mean, like, who almost hits a pedestrian who's crossing against the light and, and then apologizes for it and doesn't just, like, start screaming, like, frightened uh concerned profanities you know uh but i really did love the you know the, this first section of them driving around and talking i thought it was really wonderfully composed i loved the low angle shot of john in the back of the car like lit by the street lights and the traffic and the rain it's just a nicely composed scene I really loved David Thewlis's performance um, so much when he's like, she wasn't a very good person, I'm afraid. You know, it was, it, there's that sort of like creepy, like Vincent Price weirdness that we didn't get from Kane in episode two, but that we are getting here and, and I'm all in. Unsurprisingly, Sean in for the creepiness. Yes, always <laughs> in for the creepiness. Um, and, you know, and that, that where he's listing off his crimes that uh, got him committed. He's like, oh, yeah, so I stole stole a, a ruby from my mom. Uh, and then there was arson and uh, murder and general mayhem, <laughs> among other things. <laughs> <laughs> and it just, it, you know, wa watching Rosemary's growing concern there and David Thewlis just, just like being full on like frightening was a really nice moment. Excellent. Uh, Ashley, over to you. Yeah, I agree with Sean. I was really impressed with David Thewlis's performance as well, though he will always have my allegiance in a lot of ways as far as this was his performance is concerned that's kind of been a continuing thread anytime he's in a scene i enjoy what he does i might not always like the script that he has to perform but i think he always does well with whatever material he's handled he's handed uh and i agree i think rosemary is just a saint of a woman because if that had been me i would have been like this is there's something wrong here, something rotten in the state of new york and uh i'm not picking this guy up um so the fact that she very kindly offers him a ride, wants to, you know, take him uh, home, make sure he's safe. And then even as uh, he is describing the quote unquote general mayhem that he's committed throughout his life and the very uh, inconsistent upbringing he was given, the fact that she's able to stay so very calm through all of that and think critically about what will keep her safe and her dog safe. Oh my goodness. I would die for that dog. I mean, what dog wouldn't I die for? But that <laughs> dog, especially Susie, are you kidding me? Just a sweet girl. Um, so being able to see her do the mental calculation of, okay, I have made a mistake. Something's wrong. We're in danger, but not panicking. I thought was a really great break from like the typical sort of um, 
unhinged murderer plots that we get on television. The fact that she's able to really assess her situation and figure out what the safest course of action will be for her uh, was was well shot. Um, and I agree with the lighting as well. All I, I, I have no you know, technical word for this. All I can say anytime I see this done well is this, this is really great comic book lighting. Like this feels like a comic book, but adapted Mm. this. It's not, you know, iodized street, uh, light lighting. It's it, there's something slightly more vibrant about it in a way. And the way it cuts across his face feels makes me uneasy, but also really compelling. So, uh, Usually Alan and I have a code word for, you know, if we say something is really well lit, we mean the movie's actually very bad. But in this case, we're like, no, it actually <laughs> is very well lit. We love this. So uh, that's that's been kind of my my impression with it. And I forget the actress's name. I actually forgot to write this down. But the woman that is playing Rosemary is also in Ted Lasso. And the fact that she just plays these very calm uh, methodical characters who can who can calm crazy people down. <laughs> I'm just like, wow, you're really being typecast, huh? Uh, Kyle, over to you. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll piggyback off exactly what Ashley and, and Sean have already mentioned, that I think the way that they so artfully built the tension throughout the scene or the series of scenes was, was so well done. And the whole time you're just kind of waiting for the breaking point. You're like, she's, she's navigating this so carefully and so perfectly. So what's the moment mm-hmm. where she slips up? Right. And, and I think it's a very interesting, you know, coming from my perspective, basically knowing nothing about John at this point, right? Like up until the, the guard is killed as he's escaping the asylum, I'm, I'm kind of like, so far, all I know is John's the victim here, and he might actually be a pretty good guy. But then when he pretty callously just allows that to happen, I'm like, okay, no, now I have a little bit of a, a feel for him. Um, and so I think coming into this scene, then, it's it's like you're still trying to get a, a grasp on where he lies and, and like, how, how extreme is he? How cracked is he, mm-hmm. right? And so I really appreciate them building the tension throughout this scene, and you're just waiting for that breaking point, right? You're just waiting for that moment. And as they have this kind of careful back and forth in this conversation and, and you know, going into the, the gas station and everything, there's just this constant tension uh, where you just – you're just waiting for it to break, right? You, you, you just know something's going to slip and something horrible is going to happen. Um, so I really love the way they they carried that through. And I, I think it was executed just excellently. Well, and one of the interesting commentaries we get here, so far, everyone that has an echo with John has either pulled out a gun on him and been uncreated mm-hmm. or gave him a coat or what Rosemary has done, which is de-escalate. Yes, Right, every time tension right. goes up, she finds a way to de-escalate, and tension continue to increase, but she would continually flatten the curve back mm-hmm. down. Yeah, and that's a really good point. You know, just thinking of where we are today, and thinking about what is the first thing you do, right? Do you de-escalate? Do you pull out a gun and try and shoot somebody? And what are the ramifications of that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is, I mean, it is a diff, like I was saying, it's a different approach to the idea of violence and the utility of violence, which I think is is a really nice thing to have on TV. Yeah. yeah That's I, why it was helpful that Dream doesn't punch Squatter Bloat at the beginning because mm-hmm. it continues the nonviolent piece of this all. And you know, I, I, I thought about that. It was always a tonally weird moment in the book. It always felt 
So for 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 uh, listeners who maybe haven't read it, or for for anyone who who doesn't remember it, um, in issue four of the comic book series, when Squatter Bloat is like, "Oh, where where's your ruby?" kind of like, you know, punking him. Um, Dream sort of grabs this weird, gross, like waddle that the comic book character has, and just like tosses him. And he it's, like bowls him like a bowling yeah, ball. Yeah, yeah, like, he like flips him like a bowling ball. Yeah, and it, it was sort of like Neil Gaiman was like trying this out. Like, is this in character? And then he decides like, no, let's just not do that again because I don't think there's any other moments where Dream is like physically aggressive throughout the entire series. Really, absolutely. And then, uh, Alan, why don't you bring us home on this scene? So I will definitely piggyback on what you guys have already been saying uh, in that Sarah Niles, who plays Rosemary, the second she opens her mouth and it's not a British accent, I realized it was not in Ted Lasso anymore, which means this could go very, very, very badly very quickly. (laughs) I adore Ted Lasso and I agree that her character of de-escalation, even to point out the fact that even when she tries to get help, it's not her that does it. She asks for help and asks for someone else to call 911. So not being the factor that is continued, continuing to escalate the situation. Mm. She is asking for the help, but she's like mm. outsourcing the escalation part of it to a different person. So it's it's interesting that <laughs> that particular choice. I also agree with the the car sequences having shot several of them myself uh, are notoriously hard to get right. And the angles are weird because mm. of the just the the way you have to shoot inside of cars, and everything about that was excellent. And I love the the light and dark side that you get on John. Like you get him like cross like hatch lit in the side, but it's also equally balanced in bit of an off kilter way. Like it's not a straight. 50-50 straight up and down the nose line. They almost intentionally are visually putting you off kilter because the, the light is slanting through him. And so the dark side, he's got more light than dark, but the dark is so mm. prevalently there. And what's also so interesting is, oh, yeah, yeah. even though like John has done these horrible things, he's sitting right next to Susie, who is a Rottweiler, and it's a dog, and typically dogs can sense bad people, and Susie is not reacting. She's treating him like a normal human. So, like, you're getting conflicting messages. You're getting conflicting mm. both visuals of you, like, there's a lot of light. Like, clearly, he's in the light. He can see who he is, but the longer you go, the more in the dark he kind of goes. And yet, in the midst of this, there's Susie, mm. who is just delightful and just just the best girl. And wants to, but is not feeling threatened whatsoever. And I, I thought that tension was interesting. Well, because they could have picked mm-hmm. any dog breed they wanted, any dog breed in the entire world. You could have put in that car, and they chose a Rottweiler for a reason. Because especially American audiences or Western audience, they're going to take the image of the Rottweiler and put that aggressive behavior into it. So when you just see Susie just smiling and panting you're like it really must not be that bad of a guy i I don't know i'm gonna give Susie the l on this one i think because like (laughs) there's definitely (laughs) there's definitely like an 
the the protective amulet that John has was given by like a demon from hell. Like you would think, like Susie, come on, pick up on that. Like that's you know, put put that snout to work. But if but if Susie had done anything, then she would have been uncreated, that's and true. I would have been devastated. So I think they made that choice probably personally just for my benefit. But if if Susie had been uncreated, I would have. I would have protested harshly on Twitter. We, we can't go through another Jessamy situation here. <laughs> no, I can't. I can't take it. Uh, so, Sean, are we supposed to follow the the flames? Are we supposed to follow those people over there? Is that where we're going next? I think I think that's the next stop, yeah. That's the next stop, right? Yeah. Definitely follow let's those people. Let's see what they're up to. All right, let's go see what they're up to. All right, we'll be right back, everybody. Uh Okay, so for this next scene, obviously the big thing that happens is that Dream wants his helmet of state, which if you had the captions on, you will see that both helmet and state were capitalized, which is just an interesting fact. And so he challenges the demon Karazan, and then Karazan chooses Lucifer as his champion. Dream and Lucifer battle in the oldest game. Dream wins, gets his mask back. And leaves hell. So let's start with Kyle as someone who has recently experienced the Sandman. How'd you feel about this? So I, as I mentioned in my hot take, this was definitely the highlight of the episode for me. I really loved this scene because it was so unexpected. And I think despite, I, I totally hear what you were talking about in terms of him fighting Lucifer felt off and it being weird that he could defeat Lucifer not just once, but twice. I, I totally see your, your point there. But at the same time, it also felt so on key for that to be the type of way that Lucifer would fight, right? Like, I think once once that started happening, I was like, no, this makes so much sense. They just, they both feel like such sort of witty, clever characters that this feels exactly how this this type of, of conflict should play out. So I really, really love that. And, and then I think, again, like I mentioned earlier, the the imagery that you get and just the the back and forth of the the conflicting images as they're they're hashing this out in words, but we're getting a visualization of it at the same time. Um, I, I felt that was just super compelling. It was unique. It was again, as as we've talked about, so different from your traditional superhero fight scene. It's not just punching each other out. It's not just um, you know lasers and and Hulk throwing cars and things like that, right? It's it's different, and it's it was super compelling. Um, and so I really loved the way that that was done. Um, it, it just, it felt very clever on a number of levels. Um, I do think just having Matthew present throughout added like just the right touch of levity to we're in hell. So we need a little bit of a break. Um, you know, I think he was just kind of the perfect touch throughout and, and kind of having him there as a companion for, for dream as he's going through this conflict and reminding him like, no, no, you know, you, we're not at the end yet. There's there's more here. You need to you know be kind of processing through this. And so I, I think that was really interesting. I don't know how that that lines up in comparison to the comics, but I found it very interesting and compelling that we had Matthew there as well as kind of a, a pseudo guide uh, in this conflict for Dream. Yeah, I so uh, it's it's the whole scene is pretty close um, to the comic, with the exception of Matthew being included there. But I, so if there's one thing that was, that maybe didn't 
ring right for me in this episode. I don't really feel like Matthew's like pep talk added a lot. I wasn't crazy about it. Um, I understand that you need, you know, you need to draw out that moment a little bit, that moment before, you know, dream gets back up and like, uh, delivers the knockout, but it just, yeah, there's something about it that didn't seem quite right. Like, you know, he's kind of like this guy I just met because he just met dream like a couple hours ago uh and don't know very well would never leave his raven in hell and it's kind of like well dream leaves people in hell all the time like you just met someone who dream just straight up left in hell like and this was someone who was very close with him so i don't know there might be a little uh, sense of unearned loyalty there although i guess you know he needs dream to get out of there so I, I will say if i if you don't mind me jumping back in on that for me the way that it landed was more of a sense of self-preservation like i i like when I hear Matthew say these things, it's less of a, I'm familiar with you and I know what you would do in this circumstance <laughs> or more of a darn you. Yeah. Don't you abandon me and, and make me die twice like in hell. Right. Like it, he strikes me as a very naive character, mostly in the sense of I, I I'm, I am naive and I'm self-absorbed. And I think that makes him an interesting reflection again with the conversation with Rosemary mm. and John, um, because he's playing out that selfish side is the way that I perceived it anyway. Um, yeah, that's true. But then so again, I did he kind did of find that option to leave. Like dream tried to send him away there and then he chose not to. That's yeah. true. That's true. It's a, tough, it's a tough moment. I don't know. That's a good point. But I can see why it's there. Uh, Ashley. Yeah. Well, first, when we when we enter the sort of quote unquote throne room of Lucifer, I was really sort of highly anticipating this this big reveal of Lucifer themselves. And I thought they that hair and makeup did a, a really great job of sort of characterizing Lucifer. I was just oh, like, yeah. as soon as they scanned down, I saw it was like a robe dress type thing. I was like, dang it. I wanted pants with pockets. Um, so that was a bit of a bummer. Uh, but uh, but overall, I thought like even as the doors opened and blood was gushing, I was like, this is like gross. This is this is good. I like this. Um, something that I kind of wish that they had done is instead of instead of going from the back of the hordes of hell and then moving forward back to the balcony, I wish they had started from the balcony and then panned up like in the distance just to get the full scope mm -hmm. of how mm -hmm. many demons, you know, dream was going to be up against in that case. Uh, and then yes, it, yes. upon summoning his, the, the holder of his helm in that moment, I wish we had gotten that comic book scene of instead of him going back in and then being like, Oh, you gave up. And then he just summons them right in front of him. I, wish then again to to communicate the scope and the depth of these hordes of hell that we'd see the sand like zoom out and pinpoint all the way in the back maybe a, a cowardly demon that's all the way back there and you have to zoom in i thought that would have been just a little more dynamic in that case it just felt a little anticlimactic that that reveal it was an opportunity for a michael bay drone shot yes and if we could have gotten like a morning star flare that would have been perfect oh yeah mm -hmm. um and uh and and so that that was a slight letdown i was also a little bummed that Karanzin didn't have two mouths. I was really looking forward to that really oh, bit yeah. of... He's definitely missing a mouth. Yeah, that little bit of weirdness. Um, and despite the fact that we're not, you know, transported suddenly into a zoot suit wearing nightclub, which I can 
personally let go for the sake of the audience that's new to this world that we're creating. Um, I wasn't a huge fan of the weird sort of Hunger Games-like uniforms they were given when they were fighting Mm. for the oldest game. I mean, it was kind of of corny, but I absolutely loved that. uh, They're like... It's like, oh, we're going to do battle now. We better get in our Matrix clothes. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know? No, was... <laughs> I don't mind corny. I don't mind corny at all. But when when you get this sort of like dystopian costuming in a way as if we are, are fighting for our lives in the U.S. as opposed to in hell, I was just looking for something a little weirder in this case as mm. opposed to we're wearing pleather. Um, so I just wish we had something a little more indicative of, of their specific characters. I do really love the shots and the way that they, they framed the oldest game overall when we cut away to this sort of blank creative space. I thought that was beautiful. And you have all heard me rant and rave about nothingness. So I was like, it's happening. This is perfect. Um, just really, really well, well done. I wasn't expecting them to be physically harmed in that sense, but I thought that was a decent addition to help the, the new yeah, audience so understand how yeah. this was affecting them. That I thought was, was pretty helpful. I don't disagree with, with Ben with regard to having to fight Lucifer in this case. I thought, I thought that that was a miss. I do love Gwendolyn Christie though, as Alan mentioned, um, I, I join him in that fandom. And so it is kind of nice to have her really unsettling without the accent, Southern hospitality, (laughs) where they're being so very nice, Mm -hmm. uh, but there's only menace and threat underneath everything. Um, And so then their line delivery with regard to that contrast between dreams, creations, imaginative creations, and then what they choose to quote unquote create for the oldest game. I thought that was well delivered. The thing that actually got to me first before kind of being disappointed that Lucifer was the champion was Matthew's sort of pep talk. Like Sean had mentioned uh, that had struck me because I was like, he doesn't, this is not dream supposed to figure this out on his own. He doesn't need you to figure it out for him. You, you know, nothing, you, you barely understand how to be a crow. Um, so like, how do you get to suddenly win this for, for him? Um, but at the same time, now thinking about it, you know, in in maybe a sense of panic and self-preservation, maybe have putting too many chips uh, on the winning bet for Dream, realizing, shoot, this is all we got. I've got to try something. Suddenly, it now talking about it feels a little two against one, and that was the only way that Dream could have won, is if he had to finally depend on his raven. Um, and so then they both fight Lucifer, but that's the only way I can justify it. Otherwise, I would have been perfectly happy with a fight against uh, Karanzen. Like, I don't think, I think it would have been nice if we could get more Lucifer later. Um, right. And and similarly, I wish we had had that sort of threatening murmur to Lucifer themselves, to themselves, as Dream is leaving hell about destruction and destroying Dream, not directly to them as, as they're like talking, where <laughs> Tom Sturge just a little shorter than Gwendolyn Christie, but who isn't, <laughs> and, and sort of like looking down on him, saying that, you know, they're going to destroy him. I wish that would have been a more um, menacing sort of foreshadowing as opposed to an exchange. 
Alan, let's get you to jump in here. Yeah, I would agree with that. The, I think I liked the fight in general, but having gotten to this issue in the comics and having, like, you know you're supposed to be terrified of Lucifer. I got none of the terrifying. What I did get, and this might be my baggage being the youngest sibling, so I will I will tote that right here. This whole thing from the second you realize that Lucifer knows he's coming feels like the it, it feels like a weird, contentious older sibling, younger sibling hmm. fight versus two monarchs of their own realms. Like hmm. in every interaction, Lucifer, like in the the weird, the off-settling smile, the malice that's thinly veiled under niceties and things, it comes off more like a big sister trying to annihilate her younger sibling than two just lords going to battle and trying to defeat one another. And so mm. in that, like, in it, it almost feels like that's a character decision they were choosing to make because even in, Ashley, to your point, the choice of using the, I'm going to destroy you, that's something you say to your sibling. I like, would never say that, that to Ryan. Like, you... <laughs> Like as your children, though, like, like, of... I'm going to end you. <laughs> I, we got We're a, getting a lot of details it, about. Wait, I was going to say we have a lot of formative years later. here. <laughs> <laughs> especially considering but his. Like, uh, especially considering we'll his older brother is a priest. So. We need we need no comments from Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's just it struck me more as this felt like an annoyed, pissed off sibling than it did him squaring up against the Lord of Hell. And I think in that regard, I wish we had more to make hell seem more terrifying. It in that regard, like we didn't see we we heard them say billions of demons, but the rendered shot got us a couple hundred thousand. And I get like from a production standpoint, rendering like that costs a lot of money, and it's very very hard to produce. So like I, I get it, but hell at least the castle the city of dis it wasn't as terrifying and didn't was not as fear inducing as i'd kind of hoped it would be yeah that that's an interesting point because like i don't know what could they have done to communicate matte paintings yeah oh matte paintings. i will take a matte painting any day of the week <laughs> as a background just all day yes but <laughs> but for this just to communicate that like menace because i see what you're saying with their sort of dynamic um and i think yeah that was that was definitely a choice that sort of like teasing bemused attitude that gwendolyn christie had you know when uh talking about oh how how's your family how's and, and she sort of like looks up and off to the side, like struggling to remember their names. Like you're not that important to me or like her echoing dreams, earlier comments about, you know, there are rules, protocols that must be followed kind of indicating that Lucifer knew the entire time mm -hmm. that dream is here and coming. Right. But take the perspective as like, here's these immortal beings who have known each other uh, as long as, you know, reality has existed and so their their dynamic is going to be unique right mm -hmm. they're very familiar with one of each with with one another just being you know two of the cosmic big shots right so i wonder if it would have something more could have been communicated through like t 
Tom Sturge's performance, maybe, because he's so reserved mm-hmm. and and you know interior uh doesn't show a lot of emotion and that's sort of like you know there's a trade-off there like it makes sense because again this is an immortal being who's been around the block many many times and so it's not someone who reacts to things impulsively or rashly or emotionally but what you lose in a on a you know on the screen is having a reflection of like menace and fear and threat right mm-hmm. i almost wonder i feel like it, it's really difficult too because we're jumping back and forth between this scene and the scene with john and rosemary where the tension is consistently building right and so i feel like it would have been so heavy-handed if we had ended up having two scenes where you're just this constantly building tension but at the same time of the two it also feels like hell probably should have gotten the the greater weight in that sense so it, it does kind of feel almost in a way like they, not that they failed, but they kind of set themselves up for failure in that regard, right? In terms of like, it would be really hard to maintain enough enough weight and enough tension across both sets of scenes to really carry it through, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. And and to, to echo, you know, or just to go back to some of what was said about like the design of hell, like this is another one of those places where I feel like the close-ups work really well and the landscape or crowd shots just like didn't mm-hmm. as much like um you know Lucifer's Palace changed a lot from the comic book like they dropped all those like Sam Keith elements mm-hmm. where it's very oozy oozy and anatomical you know um but i still really liked the closer shots of the palace like i loved the like big old goats and their horns mm-hmm. yeah and... that was a sweet shot yeah, yeah, and, and the 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 heads and bodies arrayed around that pentagram, and then the stream of blood that Ashley mentioned that comes up. I mean, that's 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 they're 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 going right for my uh, sweet spot there in terms of in terms <laughs> of like this kind of show, right? So yeah, really enjoyed all that there. How did you feel about the lack of triumvirate? My assumption is that's a continuity issue with DC right now in the DC hell isn't ruled mm. by a triumvirate in 2022. So are you going to break continuity to match the comic book? That was my assumption. Mm. And do you also want to introduce Azazel and Belzebub, the Lord of Flies? Hell is owed a sacrifice has been. <laughs> it does make things a little more complicated. And then you have like the character designs of those uh, characters where... You know, Azazel is like a cloud of yeah. mouths, basically. Um, I wanted to see it rendered so badly. A I know, right? And Beelzebub <laughs> is a, a big fly head with like stubby little person <laughs> legs. So it works really well in Sam Keith's Hell, which is this hallucinatory, like shifting terrain, right? Like you get the sense that that in the book that hell obeys like all these different physical laws like none of what we know of physics applies to this world and the creatures that he draws are wild just like everything that he could come up with and throw in there like the little worm guy that ashley likes uh plushie love that guy where's my worm Yeah, and so this is just a different thing, like working with the tools that are available to them. But I, 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 I really enjoyed like the exterior look of the palace. I really enjoyed 
Gwendolyn Christie's leathery wings that would yeah, flap occasionally, mm-hmm. like after the, the Nova. Wings. Yeah. Like after the Nova hits and her wings just sort of flapping. It's, it's just, it, it, yes. it looked really great. Um, I did like the Matrix costumes. Yeah. Or Hunger great. Games costumes. <laughs> well, I will say though, while there isn't a triumvirate, we did get the introduction of Mazakin of the Lilith. True. And I, that is much earlier than what happens in the comics. And so I'm excited to see why they introduced her. I'm assuming mm-hmm. we're coming back to her. She plays a very prominent role. her design role was cool. In the Lucifer comic. Yeah. 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 So one thing about Mazakin is she's of the Lilith. And my assumption is that most people's familiarity with the Lilith is Lilithess. <laughs> from the 90s (laughs) right that's got to be most people's familiarity so when they hear that they're like wait is jewel showing up like i'm confused like what's going on here all right so for the quick lore corner on lilith the main place that um we see lilith introduce is as she's seen as the potential first wife of adam Biggest thing that she does is she wants to be seen as an equal to Adam. And what that causes is a lot of strife. And she ends up getting banished from the Garden of Eden. And then she is then the mother of demons is kind of the the lore place that she sits in this universe. And so the children of Lilith are essentially the you know, proto demons that are eventually going to become, um, you know, full demons and end up in hell. But the children of Lilith stay separate from hell and feel like they deserve a place of their own in creation and not one where they are ruled by either heaven or hell because of uh, who their mother is and where they feel like they have, they should have their own place in, in, in creation. Oh, wait, does that come up in the Lucifer series? Yeah, it's yeah. like a huge piece ah, of that. Right. Well, and yeah, it's, it's been a long it's time. It's interesting since I read with regard to this episode as well and Dream's reference of Lucifer as Samael because there's also some lore to suggest that Samuel, Samael uh, sired those demons off of Lilith specifically. So that's why you see some people mm, right. online going, wait, is Lucifer uh, Mazakin's dad? We're confused um, because they're pulling Talmudic references and going, how are they using this lore? Which parts of it are they plugging right. in here? So Mazakin's is one of my favorite characters. I'm really excited to see if they take a more prominent role in this series. Yeah. And, and the spoiler alert, definitely not Lucifer's child in this <laughs> world. Like there's a serious makeout scene uh, later on. Yeah. Good one. Because like half her face is missing, so it's yeah, yeah, it's yeah. great. It's gross. <laughs> it's really gross. It's, it's really so gross. Cool. All right, let's shift over to our final scene. Dream with his mask and sand now needs to get his ruby. Once he puts his mask on, he says, "I can see my ruby," and he transports to the same place John is going. Unfortunately, when Dream goes to activate the ruby, it backfires, rejects him. We're not really sure what happens. But he flies off screen and is unconscious. John then shows up, grabs the ruby, gives the amulet of protection to Rosemary, and walks off. So we got a short scene here. And Alan, I thought we could start with you. What's your take on this last scene of the episode? So I feel like one of the things 
that I picked up on is it in the different tensions that we've been building the whole time. So with the John and Rosemary scene building the tension to such a heightened state, like it, the stakes keep getting raised and with dream with effort, but not too much expended effort dispatching uh, Lucifer to get two of his three tools back and to be in control of his own power to then suddenly get bested again by a mortal using his own tool against him is just kind of a very clever kind of bookend on this because John's been showing this entire episode. He is in control. He's terrifying and nothing can really stop him. And then he meets dream of the endless and just not even being in the room dispatches him <laughs> and doesn't yeah. even question yeah. why his room is on focus. the floor. Seemingly doesn't even <laughs> notice the dream is even in there. Just thank you. That is mine. And I am gone. I thought that was just so poetic because it very much is just thank you. That is mine. Goodbye. And just walking out. And it's just kind of like, so dream has been building up and building up and building up and building up and just felt, for lack of a better term, flat on his in the corner and is yet again just trying to figure out what the heck is going on with these mortals and why am I do I keep getting beat? Uh, Ashley? Yeah, I, I really like the composition of this set of scenes. I like the fact that we, ha we come from this really triumphant exit out of hell into a warehouse, should be easy peasy, and then just gets blasted back. I admittedly laughed pretty hard. I knew it was coming, but it was still just like... Man, you can't win for losing, huh? And um, and and really felt bad for Matthew because he probably felt like finally we're in a place I kind of understand. <laughs> we're safe. Only for that to happen uh, made me laugh. And you know, we when we have John then go in, pluck his ruby, the only thing he's been concerned about this entire show so far, and then come back out. Uh, having that exchange with with Rosemary, I I was kind of holding my breath the entire time because of what I was anticipating was going to happen. Uh, and so it's just been interesting having John deliver the chaos I was hoping to see in hell. So I got my chaos. It's just not coming from the source I expected it to. And so for him to have this exchange with Rosemary and say, no lies now, you know, do you really actually want me to get back into your vehicle, the fact that she is honest because she recognizes, okay, this is a thing with him and anticipates that she will die like the rest of us all expected her to do. Well, real quick, raise your hand if you thought Rosemary was going to die. Oh, big time. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Okay, that's five for five for the listening audience. Yeah, I was really braced for it. Uh, so the fact that he says that she's an incredibly kind person, that she's a good person by his sort of chaotic value system, and then gives her the one thing that's been sustaining his family for years now was a alarming to me uh, and, and almost made him a little more terrifying because he also recognizes the source of this amulet. He knows how it can ruin lives just as much as it can protect them. So it's just like, I get that this is a boon because he's not killing her, 
but is this like really a kindness he's doing her? Is it a kindness in his own mind? He, he's never really been super positive about having this amulet because of what it does to people. I mean, he uses it certainly. Go ahead, Ben. I was gonna say he feels very lawful evil. Yes. Which is generally a very hard thing to define. Yeah. Lawful evil. And he feels lawful evil. Yeah. He is evil, but there are rules and procedures. And if you are a good person by his rules, you make it. Right. Right. Exactly. So I just, there was part of me that wanted to kind of leap into the scene myself and go, wait, you don't know what that actually does. I mean, you've seen it, but you don't really know the weight of, of being the owner. Um, I just, I really don't know what to expect now going into the next episode. So I'm kind of tense and embraced and I'm very excited. Kyle, thinking through all of that, what's your takeaway from this last scene? I would honestly just echo pretty much everything that Ashley just said. Um, I think, yeah, definitely you you hit this point and it, it feels like this is the moment where Rosemary kind of slips up and we don't know if that's the case because we don't know the consequences yet, but it, you know, she's been so careful up to this point. And then it like the, when, when John says, or, or sorry, when she says, do you need a ride somewhere? I'm like, no, Rosemary, this was your uh -huh. out. What do you do? Like, no, like now you've made a horrible mistake, right? Like you, you've navigated this so carefully up to this point and now you're screwed. And then, and then that tension kind of breaks and, and John's good and he's clearly not doing that. But then he hands her the amulet and I'm like, well, that's so much worse. <laughs> that like, no, <laughs> no, no. Because I feel like it, I feel like the, the introduction of the amulet to her character becomes the corruption point for her character, mm -hmm. right? Like, mm, obviously right. we don't know what's going to happen with this yet. Um, but it just feels like now she's in the pos possession of something that's so dangerous and so corrupting by its very nature that like, what, where is this going for her? And so it still definitely feels like that that turning point moment where she's like, she's done all the right things. She's made all the right choices, but now she's been bequeathed something that might still destroy her, which is very compelling. I will say it's a very interesting moment and scene, and, and I think it's very well done. But it's also just horrifying because I'm like, Rosemary, no, don't, no, you can't. You've You've done this so well so far. So, yeah, I, I think aside from everything that Ashley just said, that's just kind of my one takeaway. It's just like, oh, man, you were, you're so close, Rosemary. You're Like, I'm so sorry because you were almost out of this unscathed. Why does she wait? Yeah. Why? I can't get over it. I can't get the, over the it. The only way I can justify it is that she's seen the gas station attendant uncreate <laughs> by John's hand and so that she doesn't quite understand how he did that. So I'm wondering if she's terrified to go anywhere because she's worried he will somehow be able to like do something to prevent her from doing so or like get her before she goes. That's the only way if you're that terrified and you've just seen something that you can't quite explain um, that is as violent as it is. Uh, that's the only way I can justify it. I could see from her perspective in that moment, like that being an act of defiance could be the one thing that does end her, right? Like I, I think from from her perspective and how carefully she's navigated it up to this point, I think for her, the logic, it would make sense that for her, the logic would be, okay, but if I defy him now, 
who knows what other powers he might possess to come and, and take his vengeance on me. Cause he's clearly not the mm-hmm. most stable person. Um, so that was kind of my, my takeaway as well. It was like it, she probably, you know, kind of weighed the scales, did worked the equation and, and decided that her highest chance of survival was to just keep playing along until he gave her a solid out. I think that's smart. Mm, yeah. Or, or alternately, could she feel some, sense of responsibility now some sort of fear of getting someone else Mm -hmm. involved like you know we talked about her outsourcing the escalation to the gas station attendant earlier that guy would still be uh uh created if um if it weren't for you know rosemary going for help so maybe maybe she feels like she could um you know keep more chaos from happening if she's Mm -hmm. around i also just wanted to call out uh, what I thought was the funniest line in the episode when Dream triumphantly puts his helm on and Matthew's like, can you yeah. even see that thing? It's <laughs> like, such a dick comment. Like, <laughs> he's been doing this for a long time. But he's like, yeah, it's not that I impressive. I would have loved it Probably if Matthew see. had been like, you know you look like an idiot, right? <laughs> <laughs> what well, is one of those places where Matthew just has no idea what Dream is, who Dream is. The fact that Dream just happens to have eyes, he does not see using his eyes is my take. Yeah, I, and but the eye and the eyes of the mask, like glowing oh, red, look so, so cool. They're so offset as well. I would probably I really have like, the same question because they're like out to here. <laughs> yeah, uh, they're 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 metaphorical eyes. There, you know. Um, but I, I like in general how how useful Dream's tools are in the series. So you know, again, for those who haven't read the book. He gets his items back. Uh, you know, he's on his quest to get his items back. But um, throughout the remainder of the series, we don't see too much of those items. But here, you have a really good sense of why those things are mm-hmm. powerful and why they're useful to him to travel, to see, etc. Um, to 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 create sort of the raw stuff of dreams, right, with the ruby. I appreciated that. Hey, hon? Hon, you there? Yeah, dear, what you need? Oh, uh, yeah, we're uh, going for our uh, trip tomorrow. And uh, I was wondering if you filled up the gas tank already. Oh, you know what? I completely forgot. We should probably uh, head out to uh, Bucky's. Yeah, over there on Route uh, yeah, 7, right? Yeah, weird donut shape in the front. Smiling always creeps me out. Weird sense of foreboding at that place. Yeah, should uh, we go in the morning or should we go right now? I- I'd go right now. I know it looks a little creepy and drizzling, but I'd just rather get this out of the way. Ben and Ava had the perfect life. Do you want me to drive? No, I'll be alright. I'm not due for another month. Until they had a tragic accident. Now they're on a road trip to reconnect. It's been five months. They stop at a bed and breakfast owned by Martha and Dennis Newman. Oh, well, hello there. Dennis, we've got guests. Martha, where's supper? Who have no intentions of letting them leave. Did you hear that? Yes, yeah, sounds like someone fell. <laughs> Gotcha! Why are you doing this? This is about something much bigger. It's about family. You have to run! They're catching up! Stay the night. 11 episodes that will keep you on the edge of your seat. All right, Kyle. What is your final thought? on this episode. 
I, I, I think just generally speaking, as someone who's coming into this totally new, who had very little perspective on Sandman prior to, like I said, Ashley bringing it up a few weeks back, um, I've really been enjoying it as a as a whole, as a series so far. Um, and this episode especially, I think it just had so many compelling things about it. I think, again, as we've talked about, so well acted, so well lit, um, just so many great, phenomenal details throughout. Um, so I, I really, really enjoyed it. I'm really excited to continue on from here, actually. Uh, Alan, over to you. I know for me, I'm excited to see where we're going uh and looking ahead i know where we're going for episode five and issue five and i know it can that can be rough so i'm very very curious to see what's going to happen and how we're going to do that especially with how like i know we've gone a little bit back and forth on like john d and how he has been for the first couple episodes but now that we're seeing him, for lack of a better term, in his full power with the ruby, I'm scared, and it's going to be a ride, and I'm very excited. Like, I have been thoroughly enjoying the series, and it's just been fun getting back into the Sandman after years and years away from just a little exposure that I had from it. So I, I am excited. This episode was great. Excellent. Excellent. Ashley? I really appreciated how well they blended the issues of Hope and Hell and Passengers together and created the sort of reflection of Hell, both in the sort of folkloric sense, as well as how Hell manifests in reality uh, between that exchange with John D and Rosemary. That was definitely her personal hell uh, to recognize what kind of danger she was in. And so then to see hope manifest itself in two different places in ways that we don't expect, you know, in the oldest game, in the actual manifestation of hell as a, as a place, as a concept, and then in Buffalo, New York, in the car, uh, both for Rosemary and survival, but also for hope for John D in a place that he didn't expect experiencing mother like love from somebody who's very, not his mother from a complete stranger, I thought was really beautifully scripted. So I'm, I'm enthusiastic about the dialogue that we had written for this episode in particular. And I am cautiously optimistic for the next episode. And Sean. Well, I just want to express uh, solidarity with Rosemary because I can also be a bit of a nervous eater. So when she was in the gas station and grabbed an entire box of Twinkies and a box of Cheez-Its and several smaller bags of pretzels, I was like, you know, I feel you, girl. It's a stressful situation. I also want to say that I was just glad for this conversation. It's really... uh, interesting and valuable to hear from people who don't like have as much Sandman history as we do because your mind can go off into like the I'm expecting certain beats that I'm familiar with and when it deviates at from that I'm interested and I enjoy it but I'm always expecting it to come back to the path that I'm familiar with um so to hear say like oh I wonder what's gonna happen now with rosemary who has this infernal amulet right like the fact that people are coming to the show for the first time and their minds are going off onto into totally different areas than somebody who might 
be familiar with the source material would, I think that's that's a really nice thing. The way it it it, it you know provokes the imagination, right? Like that's the strength of Sandman. That's what's so cool about this series uh, of comics, and that's why I fell in love with it as a kid. And that that the adaptation now can do that same thing in remarkable new ways is very nice to see. Thanks so much, everybody. So y'all seem to really enjoy this episode. Clearly, I wasn't happy with their decision to have Dream battle <laughs> Lucifer, but Gwendolyn Christie is phenomenal in this role, and I really hope we get to see a lot more of her. Ashley would have loved to have seen Dream punch the gong directly, but I think we can all agree that it's refreshing to not have another TV show that relies on choreographed fighting scenes and violence in general. Kyle, you've really enjoyed Matthew's inclusion in the show, and while his lines are a bit functional sometimes, I think we can agree he's a great addition. Kyle and Alan, being new to this material, I really appreciate your input, since some of our listeners, and probably most of the people watching the show, aren't familiar with the source material. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you. It was a great time, for sure. Thank you so much for having us. It's been a blast, and really just enjoy getting the chance to come in and hang out with y'all. And can you let us know and our listeners where they can follow and listen to you? Well, this is an Alan thing. 100% this is Alan's yes, job. He's got to well, do the podcast chores. I was going to say, do you want me to take the podcast chores? Okay, so uh, you can find us. We we host the MinMax podcast, uh, MinMax Pod on all the socials, uh, minmaxpod.com. Uh, you can search, search MinMax. I will say, do the M-I-N slash M-A-X pod there is someone who's tried to sneak in on our domains and take and ended up doing double n so just you're looking for a blue and purple logo with a white background so uh yeah minmax pod on all the socials i'm at alan h mowers on twitter kyle's at stainbrook kyle y'all know where ashley lives on twitter that's where you can find us that that's that's terrible somebody trying to get on that they're gonna be you know one of these days they're gonna end up intertwined in that gate around <laughs> hell there they'll be handing someone a a, a a gong mallet well from the gates of hell to the street light pouring through the car windows this episode was visually striking and once again we had strong performances from the actors i look forward to seeing where netflix goes with the next episode thanks for listening to this episode of the sandman unlocked and remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story. Thanks for tuning in to The Sandman Unlocked, an odd conduit media production. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sandman Unlocked. Join us on Discord as well. Thanks to our show producer, Patrick Childers, and to Lieutenant Headtrip for our theme and incidental music. If you'd like to support us directly, head over to our Patreon. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at D-E-E-D-E-E underscore K, and on Instagram and TikTok at Ashley Mowers. Find Sean on Twitter at Lon Dogson, and find Headtrip everywhere at LT Headtrip. You can get all of this info and more in the show notes. Make sure to follow and subscribe and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, and remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story. Thanks again for listening. On this episode, we discuss the topic of self-harm and suicide. Now, if you or someone you know is affected by suicide, struggling, or in crisis, help is available. Call or text the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline on 988 or visit 988lifeline.org. In Canada, you can dial 45645 
and in the UK, 0800-689-5652. Take action for yourself and be there for others.